0: Uh, to discuss the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, before I start, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, or baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism with the Holy Spirit, the terms are generally used interchangeably. You have to be a very, very technically highly tuned pneumatologist if you want to differentiate between the baptisms in, of, and with the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be that focused tonight because in usage, you don't you don't see them used differently. You see them used interchangeably. Before I start, I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some of my usual disclaiming. I am not a charismatic. If that surprises you, we haven't. Spent a lot of time together yet. Except for the horrific extremes of the word faith movement, which is not Christianity, I'm not angry at anybody who would call themselves charismatic. I don't have a particular bone to pick, I don't have a particular axe to grind we can be differentiated without being divisive that is a skill the world has forgotten but it's perfectly okay i am um, i had an email conversation with a dear brother just today and and was reminded uh two or three emails in he uh he said i i hope i'm not being offensive and i responded back Brother, bless you for saying that. But you're not even near the border of offensive. This conversation is a conversation where two men who love each other and love Jesus and love the Word see something differently. And if, uh, if that's offensive, I'm going to be offended all day, every day. Now, the word faith movement is a whole different stripe. That is... The movement that teaches that that the purpose of God's activity in your life is to bless you in this world. That's the heart of the error. That the central purpose of God's activity in this life is to bless you in this world. And that you're not getting in on that. There's something wrong with your believing. That is damnable. That is antithetical to the Christian gospel. And that should be given no quarter. That should be given no place to hide. It's, it, 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 it's so remarkably contrary to Scripture. But not every one of my charismatic acquaintances, and I have a few, is, in fact, most aren't sucked up in the extremism of the word faith movement. I'm not angry at my charismatic friends. I'm different than them. I understand some things differently than they do, and I believe I can defend my understanding. I am, uh, you know, we're using R.C. Sproul's book on the Holy Spirit as the guide for this. If you're tracking along with Sproul, uh, this is what Sproul deals with in his chapter 8. And um, he and I are very much on the same page. Let me tell you, um, something we are not talking about specifically tonight, though the topics can overlap a little bit. What we're not talking about is a pair of terms called cessationalism or cessationism and continualism or continuism. You see them in both forms, with or without the AL. Um, continuism or continualism teaches that the gifts of the Spirit. Um, And and usually, this comes down to tongues. The heart of the conversation is usually um, supernatural utterance. The continualist says that that gift continues today as as they understand that gift. The cessationist says, no, that that gift ceased. The, The argument pivots on an understanding of 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Now is that, and two very, given just that verse, two very valid interpretive possibilities exist. It is possible that Paul meant to say that the gift of tongues as practiced in the church at Corinth would cease to be practiced. That would be consistent with a cessationist interpretation of that verse. The continuous says, no, what Paul is saying is where the the tongue in your mouth is going to one day fail because you're going to die. That also is interpretively possible. Now, there's lots of other things that come to bear on how you interpret 1 Corinthians 13, 6, but neither of those interpretations is um, categorically incorrect. Both are defensible interpretations. What tonight is not about is has the gift of tongues ceased. That, I'll, I'll have something to say at the end about that. Tonight is about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a definition of what it is before we spend some time talking about what it isn't. May as well go ahead and, and get to the punchline first. The baptism of the Spirit is the act by which the Holy Spirit unites Every believer at conversion to Jesus Christ and his universal body, the church. Every believer is placed in the large, invisible, mystical body, of which the local church is the outpost. Every believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit, is immersed by the Holy Spirit into the larger body of Christ at the time of their conversion. The term baptism and spirit occur together in one verse. One verse in the entire Bible. Unsurprisingly, it's in the New Testament. First Corinthians 13, or 12, pardon me, I'm going to read two verses, 12 and 13. Actually, yeah, 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. All. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And with that, we'd be done. Tonight is about the baptism of the Spirit, and that's what the baptism of the Spirit is. 646. That would be a personal best for me. But we're not done. We're not done. Because the, the term has was given a, a new definition, largely in the twentieth century. In fact, um, let's let's rewind a little bit. There was prior to the twentieth the, the the Pentecostal movement goes back further than the twentieth century. Um, but the fascination with the term baptism of the Spirit was was less than that. But there was. Prior to the 20th century, the holiness movement, growing out of um, various denominational roots, held that there was a, well after salvation, there was another movement of the Holy Spirit that believers ought to seek, a second blessing. And it was sometimes called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and even sometimes reference was made to the gift of, of languages. That didn't come to center stage till later. But that older holiness movement, that sort of, um, uh, Sproul calls it original Pentecostalism as opposed to the 20th century's Neo-Pentecostalism in Sproul's terminology. That older holiness movement saw that the baptism in the spirit was, was the point of entire sanctification. That once you got that movement of the Spirit in your life, you would be utterly free of sin. It was perfectionism. Now, there were some movements that that held to what was called a partial perfectionism. Which is, by the way, imperfectionism. You know, I guess I'm a partial perfectionist. Accent on the partial, mind you. but, But that movement, the heart of that movement held to full perfectionism. Not many of those around. That movement did not do well historically. For one to believe that in this life, you can achieve a state of perfect freedom from sin in this life. Setting aside what you what you have to ignore scripturally, you've got to ignore a whole lot experientially, right? I mean, tell the truth. Or else, you've got such a bad definition of sin that you are saying, no, you don't understand. I haven't, I haven't sinned this week. In fact, I'm, I'm up to four weeks in a row now in which I haven't sinned. If you can say that, you just don't have, you are not remotely plugged in to the biblical idea of what sin is if you can declare yourself innocent try this in everything give thanks and for everything give thanks how was your day today are you sin free (laughs) I didn't think so there have been some ins and fors today I suspect where your first impulse was not gratitude that is sin we're not perfectible until we shed this one day we will, but come on. Well, that old Pentecostalism kind of got morphed by a couple, of, a couple of historical events. And the history of the Neo-Pentecostal movement is a big and complex issue. I'll just hit a couple of high points. A man named Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham, started a school, the Bethel Bible School in uh, Topeka, Kansas, in 1900. And early in the life of that school, a, uh, in, a, in a revival or chapel service, a lady by the name of Agnes Osman, O-Z-M-A-N, Agnes Osman, began to speak in what, the, at the time, they said she was speaking Chinese. Now, you and I would know there is no language called Chinese. Chinese has a number of different You can speak Mandarin, you can speak Cantonese, you can't speak Chinese. There isn't a language with that name. But that's what they said she was speaking. Uh, It was incomprehensible, randomized sentences. It was credited to be the activity of the Holy Spirit by those who wanted it so to be. In fact, they said she went multiple days And either didn't speak or when she spoke, it was this Chinese. That is held by most historians of the Pentecostal movement, let alone outside historians looking at the movement, to be the rising of the sun of the modern tongues movement at at Bethel Bible College in um, Bethel Bible School in uh, Topeka in 1900. It didn't get a lot of attention. What got a lot of attention was the Azusa Street Revival. Fast forward six years to 1906. Uh, An African Methodist Episcopalian church in LA on Azusa Street, in a season of revival, a number of people began to experience the phenomenon of, of, of breaking out in ecstatic speech. That phenomena, they grabbed a label off the shelf the baptism of the holy spirit and without reference to what that's what that's talking about biblically they put that label on that experience and it stuck and there are lots of of, of stripes and movements today that hold to this definition which, which basically says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a, is, a, is a seizure by the Holy Spirit, a grabbing by the Holy Spirit, accompanied by supernatural, um, incomprehensible tongues. And when I say incomprehensible, I'm not using that in an insulting sense, I'm using it in a technical sense. If I, if I were to speak to you in Spanish tonight, I can't, but there were, and there are those of you in the room who probably can, that is comprehensible speech. If I were to speak to you in what would be heard as assemblage of random syllables, it can't be comprehensible because there's no means for you to comprehend it. Um, so when we say inco- we mean ecstatic speech. We mean non-linguistic utterance. The baptism of the Spirit is accompanied by incomprehensible speech, and it is seen as arguably the most significant mark of sanctification and maturity as a believer. Now again, I started by telling you what the baptism of the Spirit is biblically. It's when God the Holy Spirit takes an unbeliever and immerses them into Christ. This other definition, unfortunately, is the more common definition. That there comes a moment of breakthrough maturity when God the Holy Spirit washes over you and you evidence that moment by speaking in incomprehensible speech. And once that happens, you are more equipped for ministry, you are more equipped for service, and you are certainly better acquainted with the Holy Spirit than you were before. That is their testimony. And again, I'm not teaching this this evening because I'm angry at a charismatic. I'm not teaching this this evening uh, because I've chosen to pick on this point. This was my assignment this evening, and, and here we are. Couple of couple of difficulties with that. First, it is, it is utterly unsupportable biblically. We'll talk about the the tongues as evidence of the baptism of the Spirit scripturally as it is practiced today in a minute. But the biggest biggest single problem with seeing the breaking out in spontaneous tongues as the mark of God the Holy Spirit having seized control of a person is that it preempts and downgrades those things which are actually the indications that God the Holy Spirit has gotten hold of a man or a woman. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That list familiar to anybody? What is that list? That's the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know if God the Holy Spirit is dominant in someone's life? You want to know if God the Holy Spirit has gotten hold of somebody? Look for those things. Now to be fair, it's not just high-profile Christians who have been big advocates of the baptism of the Spirit, who, who mess up morally and do stupid and incomprehensible things. Jerry Falwell Jr., for example, is not a charismatic, but as deep in evil and stupid as any Christian leader has ever been. But our generation, most of us, Jimmy Swaggart, Um, Tongue-speaking whoremonger. No evidence of the activity of God, the Holy Spirit, in his life other than charismatic excess. Good old Jim Baker. Ted Haggard out in Colorado. And again, I led with Jerry Falwell Jr., so I'm not picking on the charismatics, but I'm saying that once you decide... That this sensationalistic experiential stuff is the heart of the matter in knowing God and having a right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Once you decide that, what you've done is you've decided that it's not what the Bible says it is consistent, holy living, zeal to please God, the authentic fruit of the Spirit. That's a problem, because it is a misdefinition of sanctification. My my uh, my charismatic friends who hold to the baptism, and I get along fine, but there are a couple of boundary issues. My older son Philip, who's a who's a member here, uh, he um. He went to a, a, it's a it's a good school uh, for his undergraduate. He went to law school over at FIU in Miami, but he did his undergraduate at Southeastern University up in Lakeland, which is a good good school. And and the uh, it, it is an Assembly of God school. You know that driving on the campus. It's kind of like when students from other churches come here to McGregor. Um, <laughs> I had a couple of years ago, well, some years ago now, I had, a, I had the parents of a Catholic young lady in my uh, 12th grade Bible class. The young lady and I were fine, but mom got upset about something that I said in class that wasn't terribly friendly to the Roman Catholic position. And mom wrote me a fairly scathing email. And in her fairly scathing email, she talked about the interdenominational character of our school. <laughs> I emailed her back and I said, ma'am, that's news to me. Because the big letters out front that I drive past every morning say Baptist. Our school's not interdenominational. We're, we're open, we're kind, but McGregor Baptist and the Southwest Florida Christian Academy are one and the same. This is a Baptist school. Make no bones, we're friendly. Our high school principal goes to first assembly. She's a dear sister. I'm not angry, but there are some boundaries. Boundary boundary number one, um, don't, don't try, as happened to my son on the campus of Southeastern, and it wasn't leadership at the university, it was fellow students, decided one night they needed to teach Philip to speak in tongues, and they were serious. They were going to teach him the steps one had to go through to learn to speak in tongues. Now Philip, among the many things that are both blessing and curse in his life, he's my son. (laughs) So he's like, so let me get this straight. Y'all going to give me lessons in acting out what you say is a sovereign movement of the Holy Spirit in my life. I believe I'll take a pass. He was right to. The second thing that's a boundary between me and my charismatic friends If if you try to tell me that your relationship with the living God is qualitatively closer than mine, that you know God in a way I can't, because you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I have not. In Jesus' name, how dare you? In Jesus' name, how dare you? I have known God the Holy Spirit for 50 years. More than 50 now, 52 years. I hear his voice in the word. I see his movement in my life. I know him. I know him. Not because of me, by the way. I didn't do anything but bring a pile of sin to the foot of the cross. And then I found out that the path of approach to the foot of the cross wasn't my design either. But uh, I'm I'm taking a pass. Second, the understanding that the modern Pentecostal movement has doesn't go further back than 1906 to Azusa Street, 1900 to Topeka are you really prepared to say that the whether well, you stretching or raising your hand I'm sorry okay okay I'll come back to you I'm sorry I honestly thought you were just stretching how can how can I help uh, when you start talking about
1: boundaries what yeah what jumps up into my head is acts 2 and it's very specific when you go in and read acts 2 Yeah, you with regard to what languages yeah. are,
0: you cannot make a case for ecstatic speech from the Book of Acts. You Sure can. I'm about I'm about and to show that's, that.
1: That's the Holy Spirit. Start formation of the church. Right.
0: You can't. Yeah. It's, it's not even it's not even ambiguous.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but are you going to take the position that 1,900 years of Christian history without this phenomena? Uh, now they'll they'll seek to retrofit it in there they'll find some reference to some obscure occurrence. But the the martyrs down the ages who have died for their faith, the theologians of the Reformation, the Puritans who were most instrumental in, in, in even the founding of this nation, and any number of other Christian movements prior to 1900 did not teach that yeah but once you really start to get it you'll have episodes of ecstatic language now they talk about the early and latter rain as though God is doing a new thing that's a that's a prophecy pulled out of Joel but it's ripped out of its context all the contextual dirt is washed off the roots and the thing is freeze-dried and mounted on a wall plaque without any reference to what it originally meant or could ever have meant. It's a buzz phrase, they rest from its moorings and use. Trying to rewrite Christian history. Richard, to your point, it also involves really some messing with an idea. If the modern understanding of, of the baptism of the spirit is the hallmark of Christian maturity, Now if you, no, I'm not going to do it that way. Um, I'll just state it as a fact. Paul didn't say one word about it to the church at Philippi in his letter to them. He didn't say one word about it when he wrote to the Galatian churches. Wrote a pretty theological letter to the church at Rome. Didn't mention it. Wrote a, a pretty deep letter to the church at Ephesus and it didn't come up. John didn't mention it in 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. Letters written to encourage the church and to assure salvation that you know that you know that you're saved. You'd think if the mark of Christian maturity is ecstatic speech in the baptism of the Spirit, you'd think it would come up in 1st John since the book is about how to be bedrock certain that you know God. Funny. John left out the important step of Christian maturity every One of the churches that got a letter from Paul didn't get a word from Paul on this topic, except one, Corinth. We'll talk about Corinth in a moment. Because the the scriptural basis for seeking ecstatic utterance as a mark of the Spirit is rooted in Neo-Pentecostal understandings of the book of Acts, and principally the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's have a look at tongues in the book of Acts. Now, right away, the word translated tongues, in the book of Acts, at least, as in English, if I asked you in a conversation so how many how many tongues do you do you speak? You would understand me to be asking, well let me see. You've got a you've got pretty good English. Maybe a little bit of Spanish. Picked up some French when you were stationed overseas. Done some reading in German for your doctoral degree and enough Chinese to order in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> mm, maybe yeah you can I can say Kung Pao shrimp. The word tongues in the book of Acts functions the same way. It's a synonym for languages. And except for wanting to sell Bibles to charismatics, our English language translators would use the word languages in a lot of cases because where the context provides any information at all, the context is absolutely crystal clear. It's odd to me that a movement characterized by random syllables strung together, wants to call itself Pentecostal. When, on the day of Pentecost, what happened is the believers were suddenly able to proclaim the gospel in languages they had never learned. It's not even unclear. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the, the fledgling church, the believers, were all together in one place. Now remember, Jesus has told them wait for the empowering, the collective empowering of God the Holy Spirit for the mission of the church. That's what they're waiting for. He told them that 10 days earlier, uh, the day that he ascended. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated or where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So you have the miracle of sound with the tornado wind. Doesn't say there was wind, just the sound of it. Um, God is a punster, he does it all the time. The Greek word for wind is pneuma, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. So God is making a pun. He sends a pneuma sound. To announce the coming of the pneuma now no first century leader would mistake those two words we have many 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 words in english that are spelled and pronounced the same way but any reader can tell which one of them we're, we're talking about it happens all the time here it happens in in the greek and each one of them oh, pardon me verse 4 and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, God the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. Remember, tongues is a synonym for languages. Was it what I caught on that so funny it's not funny um, charismatic YouTube video? Nonsense syllables strung together. Was it the nonsense syllables? My son's friend, his friends at Southeastern University told him to repeat over and over again until he sensed a loss of control. Or was it, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the mighty works of God. It's inarguable. It's inarguable. Either Luke got it wrong, or the language, the supernatural languages of Pentecost were languages, Italian, Mandarin, Spanish, French, Zulu, Cantonese, not Zulu, that would be, that would be um, well, what's the language? Um, Swahili, sorry. Swahili. Um, Alright, so that's the day of Pentecost. There are three other occurrences, inarguably two more, but probably three more, in the book of Acts, where, where the Spirit comes in this manifestational way. To understand what's going on, i got to do a little bit of, of, of a reminder and orientation to what's going on in the book of Acts. First we have in Acts 1:8 one of the structural outlines of the book of Acts. As the soon-to-ascend Christ tells the beginnings of the church there that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts then tells the story of progressive movements of the gospel out into those people groups. Jerusalem, Judea, that began on the day of Pentecost. Overwhelmingly ethnic Jewish people. Not exclusively, but overwhelmingly. That's Jerusalem and Judea. Samaria is the next ring. Well, there's the Samaritan revival in Acts 8, which is the next time that God the Holy Spirit is said to come on believers. Now, in Acts 8, there's no mention of languages. But the implication from the other three times that the Holy Spirit breaks out on a group of people in this way. All three other times mention languages, so it's not bad to infer that at Acts 8, in the Samaritan revival, there probably was a supernatural gift of languages. But it is said to be as what happened on the day of Pentecost it's languages. There's nothing to indicate that it's some sort of ecstatic speech. Yes, sir?
1: I think, if we go back to Acts chapter 2, I think it's even more clear. All right. When when you hear the folks listening, the disciples speaking in other languages, they say, right, look at this, right? (coughs) They are speaking in my native language. They understood mm-hmm. yeah. what Peter was saying. Absolutely. They, they didn't need that to happen. Correct. The fact that that, that was a
0: sign. Yes, absolutely it was. So,
1: so they understood it in their native language, which, was, which I think is even bigger deal than, than just the fact that they, they spoke the language. It was an actual sign. It was a proof. I understood Peter, but man, I'm hearing it now in my own native tongue. Yep. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. Yep. Yep. The third time it happens in the book of Acts, is, let's think about this, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the Gentile world. Acts 10, the conversion of Cornelius and his household. When they come to faith in Christ, Peter is preaching the gospel in the house of Cornelius. Peter has had to work through some prejudices to get there. The food and the sheet vision? Is God the Holy Spirit setting Peter up? We've been over this before, haven't we? Mm-hmm. God bless you. Was, was God setting Peter up to be willing to go into a Gentile setting and share the gospel? That I, I love that God used food to do that because I like eating non-kosher food. <laughs> and I love that, that, that it was made very, very clear in that food and the sheep vision that the food is literally fair game. But the the deeper meaning was, oh, we're going to save Gentiles. And if you were a first century Jewish Christian, the idea that God was going to bring in Gentiles on an equal footing with you was hard. Now, it shouldn't have been. The Old Testament had predicted that, that the nations would be coming to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, But the jewish culture of the first century was very narrow and prejudicial in terms no this is the god of abraham isaac and jacob and if you're going to know him you're going to come in through the door of the law it was the biggest controversy in the early decades of the church so much so that it took the church's first ever big council the a.d 50 Council of Jerusalem to, to drag the matter into the light and deal with it. Well, this is, this is still well before A.D. 50. And, and if you're going to have a movement of God in the first distinctly Gentile setting, the house of an occupying Roman Empire officer in the Roman capital at Caesarea, two things are going to be real helpful. First, you better have somebody with untouchable credentials sharing the gospel with them. At that time, Simon Peter. Biggest piece on the board. So God positioned Simon Peter to be the one to share the gospel. And then second, the Christian Jews based in Jerusalem, well, we know god the holy spirit is with us we experienced pentecost i know who you are what you think you've got so what does god do in the house of cornelius as he did in samaria he sends the third of the pentecost like events now these events are spaced out by years You cannot say, well, the church in Acts experienced the falling of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues. The book of Acts covers 30 years, and it happened four times. So you can't, you can't, every time the church got together in Acts, they were not experiencing Pentecost-like experiences. But at the Samaria breakthrough they did, and here at the Gentile breakthrough, um, Peter is preaching, and while Peter was saying these things, the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ, and the, and the reality of salvation for all who will believe. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. There it is. There it is. Well, was that, was that like Pentecost? Interestingly enough, Peter gets back to Jerusalem. Someone's reading the Bible to us. (laughs) Sounds like Acts 9. Peter gets back to Jerusalem. Chapter 11. Most of the Christian, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they don't know about the food and the sheep vision. They don't know the, the, the specific journey that God has had Simon Peter on. <coughs> they still... There it is again. They, they, they still hold... It's probably, it's probably possible that Gentiles can know God. I love it when my smart devices are smarter than I am I I live so much in that world brother you're among friends listen to what happened now the Apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea I'm chapter 11 verse 1 heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, now these are the Jewish Christians. Their position is God has done a thing among his ancient people Israel, and if the Gentiles are going to get in on it, they're going to have to come through the door of Jewish obedience the same as we did. That will be their position Until A.D. 50, and frankly, some after. The the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yeah, scandal. What would your Jewish, only what would your mother say, killer now? (laughs) That was the worst Jewish mother impression that I could possibly produce. Um... But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And he tells them about the food and the sheep vision and the Lord directing him to go. And after that vision, verse 11, behold at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them making no distinction, that is without caring that they were Gentiles. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. Here it comes. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I be- as I began to speak, here it is, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. There it is. Jackpot. Jackpot. The Pentecost-like event in the house of Cornelius was like Pentecost. The purpose of the event in the house of Cornelius was so that Peter could say to these Jews of Jerusalem, Bubba's, what we have, they have. The qualitative experience that we have in Christ the presence of the Holy Spirit that we have in Christ, God is not gonna make a difference between his Jewish followers and his Gentile followers. They have up and pulled even with us. They had a Pentecost like we had a Pentecost. You're gonna try to make the case that the gift of tongues was different in Acts 10 than it was in Acts 2, your case just took a real big hit. If you're going to try to make a case that what was going on in Acts 2 or Acts 10 was ecstatic utterance, not languages, you you cannot make that case from the text of the book of Acts. It simply cannot be made. It just can't. Fourth time in the book of Acts, final time is in Acts 19 at Ephesus when Paul encounters some Basically, lingering Old Testament disciples. Some disciples who had been followers of the teaching of John the Baptist, but did not know about the coming of the Holy Spirit, did not know about, frankly, the Christ event. They did not know about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. When Paul explained the gospel to them, they also were born again, they also received the gift of the Spirit. Those are the four episodes in the book of Acts. But it is clearest in the Cornelius house because we have Peter's argument after the fact saying, you know, this is is what they have. It's what we had. And they're equivalent. So tongues in Acts, languages in Acts, are always languages. Comprehensible languages. Supernaturally assimilated. I can suddenly speak a language I have never learned but it's a language that exists with Omar speakers and people who know it when they hear it it's Portuguese or Haitian Creole now first Corinthians first Corinthians is a possibly different matter I say possibly because this is debatable. But I I personally believe that there was some ecstatic speech in the church at Corinth. Corinth was an aggressively polytheistic, polycultural city. The largest city of its day in southern Greece. The Roman province of Achaia, which is basically the south half of modern Greece Corinth by this time in the first century is much larger than Athens. It is culturally dominant It has seaports on both the the uh, Adriatic some before me the Aegean Sea to the north and the Mediterranean to the south in the late 19th century a canal was dug um, where the, the Peloponnesian landmass, it looks like a, a ball that the Greek boot is kicking, is the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And in the late 19th century, a canal was cut through that isthmus so that smallish ships can, can pass right through that. In Corinth, at the time in the first century, there was no canal. They literally, however, had a dragway built that they could beach the boat and drag it overland from one sea to the other because sailing around the Peloponnesian Peninsula was deemed as very, very dangerous. Certainly it was expensive. Corinth got all the sea traffic from both the north and the south. The capital of the Roman province of Achaia was in Corinth, the the Bema. We meet one of the governors of Achaia in the book of Acts in Acts 18 when Paul first visits Corinth. The, uh, the largest standing structure today in archeological Corinth is the massive temple of Apollo. It was, it was breathtaking. In fact, if you ever you know, come across this one on, on, as a final Jeopardy question, the, uh, the columns of the temple at Apollo, which are four times my height easily, maybe much, much taller, are in one piece. If you ever get a chance to go to the Acropolis and see these big columns, they're usually stacks with a with a central core to hold them together the temple of apollo at at corinth is the largest ancient structure known to have monolithic columns single stone columns and they are breathtaking temple of apollo was a huge thing it was at the temple of apollo you still they're still there where the uh, where the massive complex for um, sacrificing animals to Apollo was. The whole meat sacrifice to idols argument in Corinth is over this massive meat cooking facility that was there at the temple of Apollo. The temple of Aphrodite up on the hill over the city at the Acrocorinthus was the home base of as many as a thousand ritual prostitutes that came and went in the city at night. They basically were, were... Prostitutes working a port city in the grand maritime tradition, but they were, they were, um, branded as the ritual worship of the goddess Aphrodite. And the headquarters was on the tallest point overlooking the city, the Acrocorinth. That, that temple is no longer there. Various, various other structures. It's a, it's a dominant land point. For, for seeing to both coasts and, and obviously various fortresses and things have occupied it in the year since. Into this melting pot of Corinth, there was a small Jewish synagogue, a core, a good-sized Jewish population, but Paul chose a synagogue, for what we believe it's geographical location, and began his gospel ministry there. People began to get saved people were coming to Christ out of all kinds of backgrounds and practices it was wonderfully joyfully chaotic of all of Paul's letters the letters especially 1st Corinthians somewhat 2nd Corinthians which by the way we will start Sunday 1 Corinthians is a catalog of what was confused at the Corinthian church. Now concerning this, now concerning that. That's his section header over and over again in 1 Corinthians. He's responding to stuff they've asked him about, writing from Ephesus some years later back to Corinth. One of their questions is about the place of spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And apparently there were those in the church at Corinth who saw ecstatic utterance it seems as an expression of a gift of the Spirit Paul says don't argue that don't forbid it in fact Paul says I have spoken more languages than you all and our charismatic friends jump on that to say aha see even Paul No! Paul spoke four languages. When he says, I wish you all spoke different languages. Well, yeah, you've got a port city to evangelize. I don't think he's speaking about ecstatic speech at all in at least some of those settings, though my non-cessationist friends might argue with me. But there is no question that, that 1 Corinthians... Chapters 12, 13, and 14 deal with the matter of spiritual gifts, and among the gifts it deals with, those passages deal with, are the gift of tongues. That would be a, a study for a different evening, but I he apparently is dealing with the fact that some are arguing for the superiority of tongues. And he makes various arguments that plain spoken proclamation of the gospel is superior to tongues. He said, I'd rather, I'd rather speak. Rather than speak uh, thousands of words in an unknown language, I'd rather speak a handful of words for the clarity of the gospel, for example. Here's where, here's where um, I think something telling comes out. In dealing with the use of supernatural languages, if that's what's in view here, the gift of languages, whether it's supernatural or natural, that is comprehensible in worship. Paul says, don't forbid it. But he does give some very clear regulative measures. My, my friends who exercise charismatic gifts in worship are often, will say, yeah, we, we believe the word of God to be authoritative. We are in the tradition of, of sola scriptura. It's not that we believe new revelation is coming through this. We just, we just you know, believe that, that this is something that, that, that God does. All right? So you believe in the authority of scripture. Oh, yeah. All right, here we go. Um, 1 Corinthians, again. Verse, chapter 14. regarding the use of tongues in worship. And as for me, I have never, ever encountered a single modern charismatic church that conforms to these restrictions. There may be one. There may be one within miles of where we are right now. But I've not encountered it. Listen to what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 28. If we're going to have tongues in worship, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or language, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three. Restriction number one. If you're going to use supernatural languages in your worship service, two, at most, three people total. Everybody in the room mumbling is precisely what he's saying here, don't do. Two or three at most, second, and each in turn. That means one at a time. Two or three at most, one at a time, and let someone interpret. Tell me what they said. And then, a few verses later, the real grabber, verse 33, and as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now that's contextual. He's not saying, ladies, that when you come to church you need to gag. He's talking about specifically the use of supernatural languages in worship. No woman is allowed to do it. When I point out to my charismatic friends and I ask them, so, do you ever have more than three people? Ever more than one person at a time? Ever the absence of a clear interpretation? Is it ever a woman? At that point, their eyes tend to roll back in their head, gently, I'm making fun, I just shouldn't. At that point, the usual response is, Brother Russell, you just have to understand something like God is just doing a new thing. Hmm. Okay. So we're not going to do sola scriptura anymore, right? We now no longer hold that God's word is God's final word. We no longer hold that God's word is authoritative because God is doing a new thing. By the way, that's what Jim Jones said while he stirred the Kool-Aid. That's what Charles Taze Russell said at the foundation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what Mary Baker already said at the start of Christian science. It's what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young said And they're laying their respective foundations of Mormonism. Paul says, speak tongues. In the cultural and religious melting pot that was Corinth, given where all of you have come from some really weird idol worship type stuff, and you've got a lot to unlearn and relearn. It may be that ecstatic utterance is a part of your worship. It may be that you've brought that in get it on the rails, if that's what's in view here at all. And the case can be made that what's in view here is supernatural use of learned languages that just didn't get learned. It may not be ecstatic speech at all. But if it is, two at most three, always an interpreter, one at a time, no women. I don't know of a charismatic church today that holds to those restrictions because they balled up 1 Corinthians 14 and whoosh, thrown it away because God is doing a new thing, which tells you more about their view of scriptural authority than it does about their view of the Holy Spirit. All right, one final thought. The gift of tongues today. I am I am careful. And may I always be careful to differentiate between thus saith the Lord, and here's what Russell thinks. Here's what Russell thinks. I entertain as, I, I told you, this is what I think. And so I'm allowed to use first person single pronouns when I'm telling you what I think, right? I entertain the possibility that the gift of tongues is still active today, Especially in missiological settings, I may have even seen it. Tom and Maureen Little are missionaries that came out from McGregor years and years ago. They served. Tom has gone to be with Jesus now. Maureen actually is, is in Fort Myers right now. She's joining those of us who are about to take off for uh, Greece and Turkey. She'll be on that trip with us. She's going. She's going to Italy first, and she's meeting us in Thessaloniki the day we land there a couple weeks from now. In 2005, I did not know Maureen well yet. In 2005, in a missionary partnership with Vision Trust, we had a a first of a couple of missionary partnership trips to minister among the mom people. M-A-apostrophe-A-M, like ma'am. I think it may just be M-A-M. Anyway, verbally, the mom They are a Mayan descendant people who live in the extreme highlands of Guatemala along the Pacific Guatemalan coast. They can get by in Spanish because when they go to the city, Spanish is the language of the cities, but in their village life, in their homes, in their church, they speak mom, it is a dialect that descends from Mayan. Doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard. If you're a Star Trek fan, you'll give me this. If you're not, I'm going to sound disrespectful. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It sounds like Klingon. It's very, very guttural ugh, type sounds. A lot of back throat, hard, guttural type sounds in spoken mom. You've never heard it, probably. Certainly never spoken it. Within three days of our arrival, and we had a couple of interpreters with us because we were going to teach and we were going to preach. And we were doing medical mission, by the way. We had an eye doctor with us and a gastroenterologist with us. Within two or three days of our arrival, I looked over in the corner of the church one afternoon, and there was a group of ladies sitting on the ground talking, conversing. And it was three or four of the mom women and Maureen Little. And in two or three days, she had picked up enough spoken mom that she could dialogue with these women. I've never seen anything like it. I did not believe what I was seeing. I said, Roreen, how did you do that? Well, you just listen and it comes to you. (laughs) She assimilated conversational Italian far faster than anyone. I was on the board of directors of the mission agency working in Italy that that deployed Tom and Maureen to Northern Italy when they went as full-time missionaries. So I have watched missionaries go language immersive and try to pick up survival Italian. Maureen got there. I don't know. I don't know. And I wouldn't go to the mat to defend my position but I gently submit that may be an operation of the gift of tongues because it functions like a spiritual gift. It edifies the body of Christ. It promotes the gospel. It is a talent beyond that which is normally explainable. I think my sister Maureen may have the gift of tongues. Now, if you're a hard cessationist, you and I would disagree about that because, well, no, tongues have ceased. Again, I'm not going to argue it. But I think if the gift of tongues is operative today, that's what it looks like, uh, in my in my own view. My brother. But,
1: but you said, you said well, people were doing um, uh, indescribable utterances.
0: Yeah, if they were.
1: If they were. So, but the thing <coughs> which you just described now is... It wasn't No, it's Pentecost. It's more
0: Pentecost like. i
1: right, saying she was actually conversing, and they understood she was. each other. It yes, she was. somebody was just saying yeah. something, you're like, "Oh wow, this yeah. is no. going on." Somebody actually is.
0: Yeah, I, a I don't believe saying. the I, as a non-charismatic, I do not believe that the gift of tongues manifests itself today in incomprehensible speech. Yeah. Again, I started tonight by saying I don't have. I'm not at war with anybody, but I, I do reject that view. Uh, but I do believe that the rapid, the possibility of rapidly assimilating languages you cannot otherwise be explained to have learned, might be the modern expression of a very Pentecost-like, holy cow! I can speak this and I never learned it, right. Omar. And then I'll come back. So As an
1: ex-Pentecost, um, <laughs> where they get that from, and the, the unintelligible language, yeah, they get that from a misunderstanding of First uh, Corinthians 13. Um, they take the passage where Paul is using extreme, he's using hyperbole.
0: Yeah, if I burn my body up.
1: Yes, he says, so if I know all angelic language. And so they take that, strength, ah. that those to words, and that is where the, that is where the whole unintelligible language hinges from, okay. so that's.
0: I did not, I did not know that specifically, but I've not lived in that world. Thank you, Omar. Yes, ma'am.
1: Hmm. I, walk, it's like I don't know what you and I appreciate
0: that Well if it can't be interpreted such that you understand it you're on 1st Corinthians 14 very solid ground Um so it's not to Well in, insult is in the eye of the beholder it may be insulting to them but I, I don't think your intent is insulting No, it yeah yeah well 1 Corinthians 14 says you have to have an interpreter for it to be legitimate in worship and, and you know the other thing that often comes up and I'm going to quit with this the other thing that sometimes comes up is people's private prayer language why do any of us know of the existence of something called the private prayer language I'll just put that down and walk away you're speaking Martian in your closet alone with God. Why do I need to know that? Why does that have anything? The only reason that a public discussion of private prayer languages happened is you just couldn't keep it private. <laughs> <laughs> there was an international mission board director in the Southern Baptist Convention who, uh, who published a series of articles about his private prayer language. And that was the question the then president of the SBC, my pastor, Adrian Rogers, asked him. If it's a private prayer language, why are we talking about it? <laughs> I think that's an astute question. I'm not going to critique anybody else's cause it prayer life. I don't know what's going on between you and God, and that's absolutely none of my business. But if you drag it out in the light and make it fair game, you made it fair game. Okay. All right. Well, I am done. Um, God, the Holy Spirit, has placed every believer, immersed that believer into the Body of Christ, and I'm glad that is the baptism of